Welcome back, SBC listeners. We have another cool interview episode of the Student Pilot Cast today. We get to talk to Stu Stevenson, one of the owners of Thrust Flight in the Dallas Fort Worth area and one of the hosts of the Pilot's Journey podcast, which is currently and unfortunately in hiatus right now, I think. I hope you enjoy this chat on episode 53 Zero Time to Airline. Chandler Tower, Cherokee 4121 Tango is at Chandler Air Service. We have Zulu and uh, we'd like a south departure, please. In this discussion with Stu, we'll cover all sorts of cool topics from Stu's own training to how he and his business partner are running their flight and mechanic school today. We'll talk about their zero time to airline program, the pilot shortage, and a lot of other great hangar flying. I think this one will be of particular interest to those of you out there who are thinking about becoming a pilot, especially if you're thinking about becoming a professional pilot. So let's get right into it. And I'm joined today by an old friend. Everybody will probably recognize him, Stu Stevenson. How are you doing, Stu? Doing great. It's been a long time. Yeah, it has. Stu is, among many other things, the organizer and one of the co-hosts of A Pilot's Journey podcast. We haven't heard from them in a while, but it was always one of my favorites. And uh, is also a, a pilot, a CFI, a aviation school owner. And used to be an accountant, I think, right? At one time I was, yes, correct. <laughs> <laughs> so a jack of all trades. So uh, excellent, Stu. Let us uh, give us an update. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been doing lately. Um, well, the last few years have been consumed with the pilot school. Um, it started out as just a sidelight. We uh, were selling the sport cruiser aircraft and uh, in 2017, we, we had some difficulties with the, the manufacturer on that, so we decided to drop that. So training from being a sidelight to support the sales became the primary focus. But it was still primarily recreational flyers at that time. And so it was a lot of individuals doing an individual rating and sometimes taking two or three years to do it. But uh, other times, an accelerated student. And those were a lot of fun because you get to, to see a lot happen very rapidly. Um, over the last couple of years, with the pilot shortage, particularly pre-COVID and now, you know, mass multiplied after COVID, um, it, it has been really crazy. So about half of our students are now career or full-time students uh, headed to the airlines. And so where, where, a lot of the where in flyers. the past most of them were recreation oriented. Correct, almost almost all. Maybe okay. a few here and there that would go on the airlines, but most were for recreational. Uh, and now it's about half and half. So it keeps us busy. It's more demand than we've ever seen before. Yeah, I bet. We'll talk about that a little bit later for sure. So I always like to start <laughs> with a little bit of the of, of the history, the beginnings. What got you interested in flying originally? Why did you become a pilot? How did you get in the industry? Uh, I got interested as a, as a child. Um, the first taste was when I was in probably fourth grade. Uh, my father had a friend who... Uh, had a license. He rented a Cessna, and the three three of us went up. And I was sitting in the back seat, but I was just, you know, fell in love immediately. Uh, and really never did much with it, but built model airplanes and things like that. Uh, went through high school, uh, married my high school sweetheart, and her opinion was that I could learn to fly as soon as she was dead and the kids were grown. <laughs> so that kind of put a stymie on things for a while. Um, in 2003, I, I sold a business and was kind of looking for the next thing to do and was a little bit bored and she realized that. So she, she said, the kids aren't quite grown yet. She's not dead, but go ahead and do it. Uh, so I, I did the private pilot and uh, then the instrument pilot almost immediately thereafter. And then kind of just enjoyed that for a while. Uh, then coming in time for a BFR, we'll figure, well, I'll just do a commercial and add that to it. That'd be easier than doing a BFR. So I started working in commercial. That's when I met my current business partner, um, and we really hit it off. He's a great visionary, uh, tremendous pilot and mechanic and everything else, but um, not not a, a lot of business experience. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to give him that and you know get my free training for the commercial at that point. And uh, we really hit it off. Now we're partners. And along the way, managed to pick up the CFI and the ATP. 
And uh, now, unfortunately, I don't get to fly as much now. Uh, I'm primarily on the administrative side, so I only get about 75 to 100 hours a year. But I try to make the most of them. <laughs> Not much training anymore either. I just do BFRs and uh, endorsements now. The, uh, the Mostly for or, personal friends uh, and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, know how that goes. So you're so here you are as an aviation business owner, and you're still stuck in the office. Yeah, I know it's not supposed to work like that. <laughs> <laughs> Living the dream, but there you My still are. My business partner is a DPE, so at least he gets to fly a lot. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So it was about 2003 then that that you learned to fly for the first time. Right. I actually, got my license in 2004. At 2004. Okay. All right. And the interest started when you were a child and you just suppressed it for all that time, huh? Yeah. I mean, money and and time were always a factor, but um, it was really when I, I I had a little of both that I was able to, to finally get it done. Yeah. Did you have a, a flying or aviation mentor or role model when you did that? Or did you just kind of seek somebody out a school and you just went and did it on your own? Uh, I had a guy that I went to church with that um, was pursuing a, a career, and he was working on a CFI at the time, had, did not have it, but we flew together sometimes, and he, he practiced instructing on me a little bit, um, and then at that point, he got a, a job flying, I think it was uh, medevac or something like that, in, um, or right seating in, in some sort of medical transport, okay. and so he really didn't teach me. Uh, I ended up going to a ground school at a community college and used the classroom instructor for my primary and my instrument training. Um, and then ultimately, Martin, my, my friend, uh, let us see if I lapse because he was so busy flying the mm-hmm. medical study. He, he does corporate today still. But, okay. Um, it, still still a good friend, but he, we just never actually got to officially instru- uh, be instructed. Fl- fly together. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So uh, you probably didn't realize you were going to get asked about this, so I'll tax your memory a little bit. But I'd love to know, and I'm sure the listeners would as well, what your training experience was like for like for your primary for your uh, primary um, uh, private pilot. Kind of set the stage for us. Did you do it part sixty one, part sixty one, or did you you know were you flying a lot? Were you flying just occasionally? What were you flying? Um, did you stick with one instructor the whole time, et cetera? Just kind of let us know what that was like. Um, I, I, when I decided I was going to, to start, the first thing I did was find a, a ground class. Uh, and I had LASIK surgery done on a Saturday and started the ground class on a Tuesday night. Uh, and the first thing he said was go get a medical. So I go to my my you know personal physician, who was also an AME, Oh. And he, we, that was back when we used paper forms and he, we filled all the stuff out. And well, had what are the chances your personal there. physician was already an AME? I mean, that, I mean, that, there's not a ton well, of them. Out I there. didn't know that. Um, <laughs> uh, every time I was in his waiting room, I was always reading flying magazine. Oh, there he had you that go. His, his okay. magazine rack. So I already knew that part and he was obviously very convenient <laughs> and he gave me some great advice. The first thing he said is, um, you know, you don't want to apply having just had LASIK because they're going to hold you on the ground for six months till it's stable and defer your medical. You'll have to have all these tests. It'll be expensive. And he just tore up the paper thing and said, we lost that one. Mm-hmm. And he said, the second piece of advice is, oh, and, and continuing that thought, he said, uh, wait three or four months, get a letter from your opt- ophthalmologist that everything is stable and you can reapply for the medical. Everything will be fine. Uh, then he said, second thing, he says, don't use your personal physician. I know all of your medical uh, history. Oh, interesting. You probably want someone who doesn't know you very well. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have anything wrong, but he just yeah. was, uh, you know, uh, some wisdom there he passed along. And he gave me the name of another AME to go see when I was ready. <laughs> interesting. I've never uh, thought of there, that before. Uh, <laughs> so I actually finished the ground school and took the written uh, before I started any flight training, which is not how I'd recommend someone do it. It's just that way it worked out because of the LASIK. Right. Um, I started flight training with that same instructor that did the ground school. And the beginning, it was great. Um, I hit the plateau, which most people find somewhere along training, uh, which was really right pre-solo. I just couldn't get consistent on my landings. And he, he was a great instructor. So, he, you know, we'd go and work on other things for a while. Uh, he just had me do one one phase of the landing and focus on that. And then the next phase, and and I know it's a fr- term you're familiar with, but, you know, focus on the end of the runway. And, yeah. Uh, you know, hold it off, hold it off, hold it off. Uh, don't land, don't land, right don't land. Phrases. Hold it off, hold it off, hold it off. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, you've been there. Uh, so I eventually got through that. And, and that was probably the most difficult part was that pre-sell. And knowing that if I get three good consecutive landings on three consecutive uh, lessons, which is his criteria, that I was going to be solo again. That scared me to death. Yeah. Uh, I just didn't think I was ready. And in fact, I tried to talk him out of it when he actually started to get out of the plane. He said, Let, let's do one more round, one more lap. <laughs> and he said, no, you're ready to go. Uh, what were you flying? But getting through that was... Uh, that was a 172. A 172, um, okay. There were, I was at a flying club, and they had uh, two 172s, uh, a Warrior, an Archer, um, I think a Cherokee 6. And so I switched back and forth between the two uh, 172s. And, and occasionally we'd do the Archer if the Cess- Cessnas were gone, but tried to keep it to one type, and, and right. that was a good thing. Yep. Uh, a little confusing switching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, different numbers, uh, different feel, yeah. The numbers are actually pretty close yeah. but it definitely a different feel and, yeah. and you know different sight picture and all different of that. place for the flaps different muscle memory yeah. oh yes yep <laughs> even the throttle is a different place that's true <laughs> that's true yeah uh, so i completed the private uh in about four months i was flying two two times most that, weeks that's pretty fast i get three in that's way above uh, average i was hitting yeah. hard yeah one of the things that i think um I would counsel myself against doing if I were to, to approach it again. Is I read everything I could find on flying, uh, and today it would be YouTube. That wasn't this big then, uh, but I just you know couldn't get enough and consuming everything, and then asking questions about everything I'd read, which a lot of it was contradictory. Oh uh, yes. And my instructor kept saying, "Quit reading that stuff. <laughs> You're messing your mind up." <laughs> and I was. But, uh, it, it, I'm kind of glad I did. It's now, like having some sort of physical ailment and deciding you're going to look it up on WebMD. And then you pretty much convince it, yourself that you're going to die. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Doctors love when you do that. <laughs> CFIs love it when you learn how to land on uh, articles and YouTube, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, you can. That's all you need is YouTube and a you know, flight right. simulator, maybe if you want to go with. <laughs> right. In, in fact, that. Um, it, that's probably what happened with that uh, that non-pilot in Florida recently who just landed that uh, Cessna caravan. I think it was. Did you hear about that? Yeah, yeah, that was. It was just because yeah. it was you know, flight simulator. Yeah, flight simulator. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, actually, I don't want to get into the controversy, but I have my doubts that he had never landed before. But we'll <laughs> we'll talk about that another time when we're hanger flying. How about that? I suspect he had a lot of right seat. A time. lot of right seat um, time with his maybe buddy. not on the controls, but definitely watching everything. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I got us sidetracked. Um, go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, following private, I went right into instrument and took about four months for that as well. And um, I had I was lucky. My instructor insisted we get some actual, so I actually I probably had about four or five hours of actual when I got my certificate, uh, which proved well. My first uh, real instrument flight. Uh, I flew from uh, Addison to San Antonio and was coming back, and I tried uh, two different approaches into Addison and just could not get, get a, get a, a visual, visual on the runway environment. Uh, so I, uh, they said it was a little clearer in McKinney, which is about 20 miles north. Uh, so I went up there and landed the plane, and, um, and it was a taxi at that time. There wasn't Uber. Uh, back to Addison to pick up my car. And Lich left the plane there. Luckily, the, the school I had rented from had a location in both spots. And I told him, you know, I'll be happy to fer- ferry it over as soon as the weather clears. But uh, they were fine with that. They okay. didn't really care where it was left. You said this was during your um, instrument training, right? This was immediately after. Well, probably a month after I got my instrument ticket. Oh, right after your so instrument. So it was my first okay. real hard got IFR. Got it. Okay. And, um, and probably the hardest IFR I've been in. Actually, I've, I've never had a real mist more than once. Wow. So... Uh, uh, usually, the, the, I'm not going to fly if it's really low. Sure, sure. And so I, in this case, um, it, it just came down. It was lower than predicted. How, how long after your primary training was this? After you got your your private? Uh, that was probably five or six months after I got my private. Okay, so you did it right just away. just completed my instrument. All right. Right. Yeah. Same instructor? And then I didn't. Same instructor. Okay. Uh, I, I started with the same instructor on commercial uh, a year or two later when I started that. Okay. But I had found that he and I were pretty good friends at this point and a little socializing as well. And I, I found I didn't fly as well with him as I did with uh, Patrick, yeah. my business partner. A little too familiar. A part of it was the familiarity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was just two buddies flying. I wasn't really learning, right. so to speak. It right. was my fault. It wasn't his teaching tech. Sure. 
so that's why I let Patrick finish me up on commercial. That's why um, a lot of parents don't teach their kids, right? <laughs> I tried teaching my son to drive. That did not work well at all. A <laughs> little uh, too familiar. Great, though. So yeah. it, depends it, on the personality. It, it depends on the personality. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. All right. And did you do the, did you use the 172 for your IFR training as well? Your instrument rating? Uh, I, I did mostly on that. Uh, it wasn't as big a deal during the, the personal flying. I was using the archers more than I was the 172. So they were easier to schedule. Oh, okay. Uh, so I was pretty familiar with both at that point, but the instrumentation was better in the Cessna. So I tried to stick with those. Okay. It wasn't a lot back then, but it was, it was better. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So you've already talked about kind of your progression and how you went into commercial for a biennial flight review instead of doing just the VFR, right. or I guess we, we call them just reviews now, not biennial flight reviews. <laughs> True. Um, it's hard to get out of the habit. Tell, tell us a little bit about the rest of your progression in your aviation career after that you got your you got your commercial but you weren't really thinking at that point that you would do anything with it that you would actually fly commercially is that right well i never thought i'd fly commercially um i thought about becoming an instructor at some point but i was you know after i retired that would be something good as a sidelight uh it was in the commercial check ride that the examiner is the one that really convinced me go ahead and do it now there's no reason to wait you can still do it part-time but okay. you'll learn more doing that than you'll ever do by just, you know, flying. So that sort uh, of... And he was right. That catapulted you into the, C- the CFI training when you did it the commercial. Did. It wasn't immediate. Okay. Um, I-, I planned I would probably do it over the next couple of years, probably wait two years till it was time for another flight review. <laughs> um, and about a year afterwards, after my commercial, um, Patrick and I were starting to hit it off and decided we were going to do some real uh, partnership uh, ever efforts on business. And at that point he said, you really need to become an instructor because at that time he was the only instructor and I am the mechanic and the salesman and he needed some help. And so that's why I went ahead and did it at that okay. time. Uh, I was at Oshkosh and talked to Rod Machado. It was asking him, should I do it accelerated? Should I take my time? What was the best? And he recommended um, a flight school in particular he was familiar with. It was in Minnesota that he said would be a great value and I also wanted something away. If it's accelerated, I want something away from home so I wasn't distracted. Sure. And that, that turned out to be a great choice. And then um, so I got the instructor rating. And, really, you know, the very next day when I was returning to Dallas, uh, Patrick and I were full time. Okay. And in, uh, in the aircraft sales and training business. Okay. This was a while after you had sold your business, right? So you weren't really working full time. Elsewhere, uh, right? 2011 is when it actually completed. Yeah, 2011. Okay. I started in 2010 to working with them, and in 2011, uh, became CFI and we became full partners. Okay. All right. Well, this is interesting. I'm going to dive into something I didn't realize I was going to. You did an accelerated CFI. <laughs> so let's talk about that. How long did it take? And, and uh, you know, I'm not going to ask you about costs because they're irrelevant mm-hmm. back in 2010, 2011 by today's standards. But oh, it, it was cheap back then compared to what it cost. Yeah, today, but... totally. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, tell me about that accelerated course. Like, how long did it take? What was it like? What was the experience like? How much flying? I, I haven't really been able to dive into any type of accelerated rating with any before so this is pretty interesting i'd love to hear about that uh it was it was a great course um it was very small at school there was um i think four airplanes and uh probably six or seven instructors and one instructor the chief instructor was the one that was really focused on our training hmm. um there were two of us two of us in the class and uh so it was very personal we would taught each other back and forth got a great great rapport with the other student uh and then um it was very heavily classroom. I thought I was well prepared. I read everything I was supposed to read before I got there and realized once I actually started doing it, I didn't know nearly enough. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very intense. And uh, I spent, you know, eight or nine hours um, in either training or uh, a one-on-one kind of training with the instructor or teaching the other student during the day. And then we'd go spend another four or five hours in the evening just going through flashcards and and reading and rebuilding landing lesson plans and then throwing those away and redoing them again. How many students uh, were in so the program at that time that you were going through with? Just two of us. Just two of you. Okay. Just two of us. I had one partner and that was it. And it was literally all uh, day. I mean, every waking hour you were working on this. 
besides eating? I was. I, I never turned a TV on. Uh, talked to my wife for probably 20 minutes a night, and that was it. Everything else was all flying or sleep. Wow. No, it wasn't flying, but uh, training or sleep. There really isn't that much flying to do. Uh, mm. It's it's mostly groundwork. Is there a written uh, the, for the, the CFI? I actually don't right know. Seat. Is there, is there a written for the CFI? A written uh, there's test? actually two. Two written tests? Uh, Had you a written all... test for the CFI, and then also the, um, the fundamentals of instruction. Oh, right, because you have to do both. Okay. And so did you – had you completed those before you started, or did you do that as part of the accelerated I course? Uh, I didn't – I took them before I went. Okay. Uh, just – Again, trying to be as prepared as I could, even though I really sure. wasn't as prepared as I should have been. Sure. Uh, my partner was probably better prepared on the study, but had not done the writtens yet. Okay, interesting. And so I got a little extra uh, one-on-one instruction while he was doing his writtens there. Gotcha. Uh, but the that, that helps a lot to have done. I actually was a, a glutton for punishment. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do a sports CFI or a full CFI uh, several months before I went. Uh, so I on the one, same day, there's a back when the, uh, the, the, you do all the tests written. Uh, so I did the, the sports CFI, the CFI, and the advanced ground instructor all the same day. Just wow. bang, bang, bang. They're essentially the same test. So I knocked okay. all of those out together. Then the fundamentals of instruction I did like a week later. Okay. Uh, tell me again, you may have mentioned this, but I, um, I didn't catch it. How long was the accelerated course? Was it two weeks? It was supposed to be two weeks for uh, CFIA, the airplane instructor, mm-hmm. and then another one to two weeks for instrument instructor. Okay. Um, we had some, some weather issues. Uh, it snowed on us in August in... Uh, what? In, uh, it was Albert Lee, Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was floored by that. That's stunning. It was actually early for them as well. <laughs> uh, so we had some weather issues. We had major problem finding DPEs. Uh, and this was back when the FAA really wanted to give initial instructor check rights. Oh, but, right. So they kind of let us on for several days and finally designated to a DPE. But then the DPE they designated couldn't do it. So we had to find someone. That that took about a week to get the check rides lined up. Uh, and so I never really finished the instrument at that point. Uh, we ran out of time. And I, I had really only planned for three weeks. And uh, it was gonna it was pushing into the fourth week before we finally got it done because of the delays. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so you went home without the, regret that. without the CFII and did it later. Uh, actually, I never. Oh, I've you never, never did it. I've never done it. I've taken the written test four okay. times, and every time it's expired. Oh man! Uh, so that, <laughs> well, you got that written uh, down. Things came up and just never finished it. Uh, <laughs> keeping instrument proficiency in Texas is hard, kind of like it is in Arizona. I suspect. Sure, sure. Um, it's all under the hood. That's not as realistic. Well, I've, I've taken I've taken the uh, instrument instructor written four different times. They've exti- expired each time. That says how long. If they figure they're two years, that's yeah. eight years that sure. I've been working on this in some form, uh, <laughs> including as late as recently as last year. But uh, my goal is to go ahead in the next couple of years to finish that up. I'm only going to take it written one more time. <laughs> so I'm going to get it done after this next one. <laughs> I might suggest you take it uh, once you start. The uh, the training portion of it. <laughs> uh, that is that is the the goal this time. I, I'm not. I've got a long history of doing the writtens early, so yeah. I, I probably should not keep doing that. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I keep, when I did it, the ATP, it was right after they changed the rules, uh, where you had to have the ATP CTP. So I took my written test two weeks before the rule expired, where you didn't have to have that. And it was almost exactly two years from that that I took the the check ride. Oh man! Uh, so. So I probably wouldn't have an ATP at that point. It just doesn't make sense for me to do the, the ATP CTP course, uh, leaving yeah. that I'm not going to fly airliners. Right, right. Um, we'll get to that in a second, but I do have a question about the uh, the ATP. So you you had a good experience overall with that accelerated course and would recommend it? I would, uh, particularly the instructor course. There's so much information. That, that is you know, basically all of your private all of your commercial and a good chunk of your instrument plus instructing. They then add to that all from the right seat. Um, so there's a lot to absorb. And for most people, not everyone, but most people, I think on that, something like that, if you're cramming, which is what you have to do for that much information, cramming works better in a condensed period of time. Yep. Yep. Okay. 
All right. So on to the ATP. What what drove you to get your ATP? Um, it, I I could. <laughs> it uh, was, that was there. The main thing. Yeah, I, I saw the the opportunity slipping away because of the the change in the rules. I see. And so I figured, well, if I'm going to do it, I better do it now. So I, I did it. Um, I, I, at the time that I took the written, I had just started my commercial multi training. Uh, we, we, the school bought a, a Cessna 310 with the intention that my business partner would get his ATP and I'd get my commercial multi and probably MEI, which I didn't do that one either. Um, <laughs> so the, the, that was the reason we bought the plane. And then as long as, while well, he was doing, he did his ATP and then, um, you figure as long before we sell that plane, before my test runs out, let's go ahead and do it. I see. And so I was able to knock that out. Okay. And when was that? That actually is is a fairly easy rating as long as you can stay within the 50 feet requirement. Okay. Um, because it's essentially the commercial multi-check ride, uh, but slightly higher tolerances. Well, if you want to stay within 50 feet, I would recommend not doing it in the afternoon on a hot summer day, anywhere like Texas or Arizona. <laughs> well, the examiners know about that though. So it's 50 true. feet within what the, the air is doing, not necessarily what the altimeter says. <laughs> right. Right. Okay, cool. So what year was that when you got the ATP? Um, I think it was 2016, but I don't even remember now. It's, it's, it has been about maybe 2017. Um, yeah, it was so about it, it was about the time it all that runs together. The airlines uh, before the pandemic were really struggling and stressing out about finding pilots, right? And so- right, I'm 61 years old, um, and I was still getting letters. In fact, I've got one this year from airlines that see in the FAA database that I've got an ATP. And they're still recruiting me. They think get three or four years, it's worth it to them. And the FAA database, they know your age, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And I, I've only talked to the recruiters that have come to the school. I haven't really responded to any of those right. you know, postcards right. or letters I get. It's pretty amazing. But the ones at the school say, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll take you. If you want to fly, we'll take you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if you've got you know an ATP and pulse, you're hired. You know, <laughs> yeah, if, if you've got enough turbine time, they'll wave the pulse. Can you it's, fog this mirror? Crazy, they'll take yeah, it. Right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we'll talk about that a little bit too later. But um, I want to ask you a couple of fun questions. So you've you've probably flown a bunch of different types, uh, t- a bunch of different types of airplanes. I would love to know like what your favorite airplane to fly is. Hmm. Favorite is a tough word to. to I know work because out, favorite, favorite for what, right? <laughs> yeah, I know, and it's okay if right. you want to answer more uh, and say, "Well, for low and slow, I like this. For traveling, I like this." Go ahead. Um, probably one of the the planes I've had the most fun in is an is an air coupe. Oh, okay. I've had a chance to fly a couple of those. Uh, I became it, the school air coupe. You know, champion for a while, where uh, anyone that needed air coupe training, which there's not a lot of those, uh, I got to teach. Did and you so guys have one? No. Well, we did briefly. We took one on trade. Oh, and okay. I got the, that's where I first got introduced to the air coupe. Uh, but since I had a, you know, at that time a whopping th- two or three hours in them, uh, <laughs> as people called, would say, you were the expert to teach me in an air coupe. Yeah, I was the guy. <laughs> uh, so those are a lot of fun. Uh, rel- dispatch reliability was a problem. Oh, I bet. Uh, there, I, probably at least one out of three, maybe one out of two times we, we tried to head out, something canceled the flight before we ever got in the air. It, it was always, it was mechanical, old, right? Fragile yeah. plane. Now, did it, you, it was mechanical. Did you love it because you didn't have to use your feet? Or No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that actually drove me nuts. <laughs> I was still pushing the, the floorboards. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there was nothing down there, but I, I was pushing the floor trying to get some rudder in there. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, what made it fun was the open canopy and the fact that you're you smell the grass. You know, they talk uh-huh. about flying a cub. Yep. And I, when I was flying a cub, I was trying to learn my tailwheel, so I wasn't focused on the, the grass. I was focused on keeping the the, the nose point the right way. Uh, Did you have the so doors the, off or on with coop, the cub? Uh, they were on, on okay. but um, the little window was open. Sure. Yeah the uh, the air coop. It's just everything about it is so simple and yeah. straightforward and no nonsense, you know, wooden seats, wooden floorboards, wooden dashboard, and, you know, a single, basically a single control uh, device. But uh, yeah. it, it was just always fun. Yeah, that sounds cool. All right. 
What's your least favorite airplane? Um, oh, go ahead. You were going to say something mm, else? Well, I was just thinking for different types oh, yeah. of flying. Sure, go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, I, I like, there's very few planes I haven't really liked. Um, you know, I, I had an arrow for a while. Uh, a great businessman. I bought an arrow like a month before they changed the rules that said you don't have to have complex for uh, <laughs> commercial and, uh, CFI. Right. And so I, I never did put that one on the line. I just fixed it up and flipped it. Uh, but I love that plane. That was great. Uh, I've got a Cirrus now. Uh, my wife's requirements to fly is that it have air conditioning and a parachute. So it kind of narrowed the field down a little bit. Sure. And so that's why we have a Cirrus now. Yeah. Um, and that one's a great traveling machine. It's not a sporty machine. Yeah. So it's like, uh, well, I think Austin, um, I can't remember his last name, the guy that wrote X-Plane, uh, he oh, had a Cirrus right. and then bought a Columbia. And, and he made a nice analogy that the, the Cirrus is the like the Lexus and the Columbia is like the Corvette. Interesting. I, mean, the, I didn't yeah, know that. The, Cor- the Corvette is tight and, um, and very sporty, but you're also cramped. The, the Lexus, you're spread out, you're comfortable, smooth, everything is just very luxurious. Yeah. And that's kind of the comparison I see as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they're selling a bunch of those things right now, aren't they? Those yeah, the serious airplanes. Pop, the new ones. It's amazing. Yeah, they're just selling them like, like I've never seen. It's amazing. All right, cool. And so you don't have any that you didn't really enjoy, huh? You're an equal opportunity least flyer. My favorite was... Either the um, the RV twelve or the Remos, and that was because they were um, they, they were a totally different feel from the Sport Cruiser, which is the other light sport that I'm most familiar with. Okay, uh, they they are good planes, uh, but they just they felt clunky compared to what I was used to. Again, kind of that Corvette versus the I Lexus see. comparison. Yeah. So, do you prefer a true stick, a stick like the uh, Cirrus, or a yoke? It doesn't make any difference. <laughs> Within five minutes, you forget what your the differences are. I mean, they just they all feel natural. Gotcha. All right. All right. Good. So you you mentioned how the flight school got started. It was sort of a business venture between you and your your friend as you guys started flying together. Tell us a little bit about the evolution of the school. Um, you know, once it got started and, and how it's evolved and so on. And I'm going to dive into a little bit about your, your philosophies of training there and what you've seen in the industry and so on. But let's just start with how did it evolve and, you know, what are the big things that you've learned? Uh, it started as again, uh, aircraft sales was the primary focus mm-hmm. and then a little maintenance to support the people that bought planes, a little training to support the people that bought planes. And then a few outside maintenance or outside uh, training people along the way. But again, the real focus was selling airplanes. Uh, and and the, the Sport Cruiser was the plane we distributed, and, and I absolutely love the plane. It's still one of my favorite of, of any kind of plane. The, uh, but it was uh, a Czech company that went through some hard times. Uh, they, they were very successful. We, were, we sold about 600 of those in the U.S. over the, the span from 2006 to 2017. Um, and it was, did very well. But the, the, the factory became a little more difficult to work with, and there were, there were some tensions there between some people that are no longer at the factory. And so we decided in beginning in 2017 that we weren't going to sell it anymore. We couldn't come to an agreement to renew our agreement. Uh, so at that point, it was, now what do we do? Well, we've already got students. we already got maintenance. Let's just focus on those. And it, it was very easy at that time. It was kind of an uptick in 2017 mm-hmm. to... People were interested in flying, not so much for the airlines, although there was some of that. It was a lot of people just recreationally flying because the economy was good and then people had the time and the money to do it. Yep. Um, and, and that was probably the most fun uh, from a training point for me because I, I was still training, teaching, uh, and not so totally focused on the, the business side that I could still stay in the cockpit and get to know students and, and see them progress. Uh, but as things heated up, 2018, 2019, the airline demand got stronger and stronger. Uh, we, we added a career path program, the zero time to airline program. Okay. And that became a, a pretty major thing. We, we got the 141 certification. I'm kind of the compliance officer for the company, so I did that. We did an aerial tour, so I got the 91-147 certification for that. Um, our maintenance, we needed to become a, 
Part 145 repair station in that process, and so I got all those certificates. And we're in the process of becoming a 147 maintenance school now. So no wonder you're always in the that. office, Stu. <laughs> uh, I, I spent a lot of time <laughs> reading regs. Let's put it that way. <laughs> One of the things we we discovered is that as we grew, we were having a hard time finding instructors, and so we. So, well, we, we need, need to start building our own. So we created a, a CFI Academy that was a, an intense two-week, actually 10 to 14 day, depends how you structure the, the individual class and what the students' desires were. But 10 to 14 days, and um, they would have their CFI certificate. It was very intense ground school. Uh, we had a no-fly option. So some people would come in, take the ground school, and go back and work with their local CFI to finish and take the check ride at home. Uh, and that's still very popular. Uh, so we, we, so we you, found that we made some you really essentially good put into effect a program similar to the one you went and did. That was a lot of the model. Okay. Um, it, that was the the vision is I wanted to replicate that, but on a larger scale and a little little quicker, yep. so that we didn't have some of the delays that a small school had that, where I did it. Right. Uh, we recruited Bob Choate, who's a nationally recognized, distinguished instructor, to to head the academy up, and he did a fantastic job. Um, and so he, he grad he personally oversaw the graduation of probably about 500 students to that program. Wow. And, um, he has since retired. He still consults with us, but, um, he's retired, but we've, we've kept that same format going and we do, um, the 10 to 14 day CFI, we do a seven to nine day double I and, um, it's, it's been very successful. And we got you know, the cream of the crop to become our instructors. Uh, we were having trouble getting mechanics, so that's the impetus for us now doing the same thing with a 147 mechanic school. We just need to build our own since we can't find them on the open market. Worked for the pilots, so why not, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's actually more demand in that area than there is for pilots right now, believe it or not. Interesting. Um, so that that was another reason we did it. There's some of the community colleges in the, the region are interested in partnering us with, with us on that for degree programs where they would provide the core courses and we'd provide the, the, you know, topic training, the, the hands-on. Yeah. Okay. Right. Oh, cool. All right. And so, so that's kind of where you're headed in the future. I think last time we were talking, you talked about possibly even expanding to new locations, right? We opened our second location in October. Uh, it's only about an hour away from our primary location. We wanted something that's close to home to basically learn how to do it wrong <laughs> so that the, the next location we can do better. Okay. Uh, and you know, we've, we've learned some things along the process. Um, and we're, we're talking now with another regional. It's probably about uh, two and a half, three hours away um, about possibly opening a location there. And eventually we'll expand to Florida and Arizona, which are the, the, uh, the two main things. Uh, Texas, Florida, and Arizona are the three best climates in the country, um, both business and weather right to conduct, uh, training. So that we'll, we'll be in all three places. Oh, interesting. So expansion is on the horizon. So it is, we're, we're trying to do one location a year. Oh, that's fast. All right. A lot of learning. Um, all right. So what we haven't talked about yet is what's, what's the name of your flight school? Thrust flight. That's a new Uh, rebranding. Is it not thrust? Yeah. Uh, we were U.S. sport aircraft, okay. uh, but this is, we no longer selling aircraft. We didn't think that was a, the appropriate name, so we rebranded to Thrust Flight. Okay. All right. Tell us a little bit about your, and you've touched on it a little bit, but I'd love to understand your your philosophy and, and mission uh, around the flight training, since that's what this podcast fo- uh, focuses on. It's it split. We We have two distinct flavors, if you will. We have the, the career training for the, the zero-time to airline uh, people headed to either corporate or, or airline aviation. And those folks, we, we really try to keep it as consistent with the program they're going to have there. They wear uniforms. They're not epaulets. They're just you know, <laughs> Nike sports shirts. But um, Like a polo we, we or something, all right? Our instructors wear, right. Uh, all of our instructors wear a black polo, Nike polo, and then all of the, uh, the ZTA students, we call them zero-time to airline students, wear red ones. Uh, and then they get little. Thank you, by the way, for not perpetuating the epaulette thing. <laughs> oh, we, we tried anything to avoid that. Ties and epaulets, we really don't want to do. <laughs> Sorry, Maybe to we interrupt. don't want to wear them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, for the career training, we try to make it crew oriented. 
uh, we, we try to, it's, it's a full-time program. They don't have time for another school or for, for work. So they're, they're on campus okay. usually about eight, nine hours a day and, you know, six, seven days a week. And, uh, we have housing for some of the out of town folks that they'll go in home and study at night for several hours. So it's a very intense program. Um, you know, there, there is a, a dropout rate, uh, because not everyone can do that pace. And mm-hmm. so we have what we call a pace program. It's still a career program, but then shifted to be a little slower, paced where they could do that over a longer period of time uh, and not have so many fire hoses okay. to drink from there. How long? Uh, so, so the immersive program, uh, which, what do you call that one? The one zero time to airline, zero time to airline. That, that's all in full time. Okay. Get it done fast. That's the one where you're on campus. You, you know, you're, you're doing it all the time. What, what is the, um, what is the trajectory for that? How long does it take for them to get all their ratings? Uh, the goal is to complete in nine months. The average is really somewhere in that 10th to maybe 11th month, uh, depending on weather. Um, so definitely less than a year, but we try to keep them as short a time as possible so they can start earning their hours towards the, the ATP. Uh, most of them will hire as instructors for sure. our own uh, school. The, if we can't take someone, we don't have enough slots. We have agreements with several other schools that are having difficulty finding instructors. So we'll we'll help place them in one of those schools to get their hours. We've so nine, nine to eleven months. Sorry to interrupt, but the nine to eleven months that includes Good. CFI and CFII. Is that right? Correct. Right. What about uh, what about MEI is optional. Okay, that's what I was going to ask. Okay. <laughs> Uh, it does include the multi-commercial rating, and most people will go with get 25 hours of multi-time. Some will say, let's use part of that 25 hours and get the MEI as well. Uh, but that, that's kind of an optional thing that, that some choose, some don't. Okay. All right. So I interrupted you. Keep going. Once they complete the CFI and I, uh, th- at that point, they're they're finished with the program officially. And so they'll start instructing. Typically, they'll instruct with us. And we... We can get them about 100 hours a month, typically, and they'll do that for anywhere from uh, 9 to 18 months, kind of depending on how hard they want to work and how many hours they, they get. And Before they uh, get their 1,500 really kind of and get hired is. somewhere, right? Right. Okay. Although we do have a partnership program, um, Envoy, American Airlines, okay. wholly owned subsidiary. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got a program, cadet program, where they will actually hire the student when they complete commercial before they even have their CFI. Okay. And they become an Envoy employee. Uh, we lease them back from Envoy to do instruct for us. But while they're instructing, they are an Envoy employee. They, they have a seniority number. It's not their final pilot seniority number. It's an employee seniority number. Okay. So it's not quite like coming in an extra year early, but it's close. Uh, but they still get full travel benefits, full you know health and all that kind of stuff. Wow! So it really works out nice. Uh, the travel benefits alone are, are worth it for most people. I can't get they over the envoy because they now have a, a loyal loyal employee that's sure. ready to go as soon as they get their hours. Sure. Yeah, um, I can't get over the fact that you said we'll lease them back, and we're talking about people, not airplanes. That, that is true. <laughs> you know, for all intents and purposes, there are employees, but legally they, they're Envoy's employees. So okay. Envoy pays their health insurance. We don't have to pay that and okay. things like that. works out really well for us as well. Nice. All right. That's very interesting. I hadn't heard of that before. Uh, a couple of the schools are doing things like that, trying to get, get people on board early. Um, most of the schools we work with have some sort of cadet program, but Envoy's the, the only one that really actually hires them and pays them directly at that point. Cool. All right. Uh, what what would you say is the percentage of uh, folks in that program that are, I, I know it says, you know, uh, zero time to airline, but how many of those folks do you think choose a non-airline, you know, route? Maybe they go, um, you know, corporate flying or, um, you know, some, some other type of professional flying. Most choose the airline just because that's the, the, the most vocal need, they're the largest. Okay. Um, there are some that, that go corporate. Um, we encourage them if they think they might want to do airline to start there. Uh, it's easier to go to, to airline without having had corporate background, where it's not as hard to go from airline to corporate. Sure. But um, those that don't want to teach, we've got a, an arrangement with Ameriflight and then I think one other freight carrier okay. that uh, does either Part 135 or Part 91 uh, cargo flying. And um, a lot, well, I would say a lot, a few of the students that don't really find teaching is their thing will opt to go there. 
Yeah. It's a little slower than teaching as far as getting your hours, but it's a, another option. But they don't have to teach, and it's not something they want to do. They don't have to teach. Yeah. yeah. And if it's not something they want to do, it's probably better for the students that they go to do that <laughs> yeah. instead. And, and for them. <laughs> For everybody's mental health, it's better. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Good deal. So, uh, for the Av Geeks in uh, that I have in my listenership, uh, what equipment are you guys using for your training? Um, we we have a mix. We've got about six sport cruisers. Um, we've got uh, see, I don't know how many now, eight or nine Cessnas. We ordered twelve Archers uh, that actually start delivering uh, in uh, next month, which be June. Uh, we'll have 12 of those this year. Then we haven't finalized the order, but probably order another 12 next year. Uh, and we get them all with air conditioning because we're in Texas. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of nice. But they're all G1000. Uh, what, what a nice The perk. only planes we have, yeah, all of our <laughs> aircraft are glass cockpit. Okay. Um, and most of them have air conditioning. The sport cruisers don't, unfortunately. They just can't take the weight. But. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And what about for your multi? Uh, we're using Seminoles for the multi. Okay. Air conditioning? I'm just kidding. Yeah, so I don't know. Uh, on those, no, we don't have air conditioning. Those are the other two uh, classes, the, the sport cruisers and the Seminoles, so we, we can't get air conditioning. And, uh, the new air, new Seminoles we can, but they're yeah. about a million bucks a piece, so we haven't bought a new one yet. Yeah, I hear you. And is that across both of your locations as well as your future locations that you're planning on? Or is that just the one location? Right. Uh, they're at all the locations, and we'll, we will eventually be probably an all-piper fleet. Okay. Or at least Piper and Sport Cruiser. Um, we try to, to cycle the planes out after five years. And right. so the Cessnas are, the older Cessnas are starting to get there. And we've got, uh, oh, by the time the, the newer ones get to five years, we'll probably have Pipers to replace them. Okay. And are they delivering fast enough for you? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, because of the supply chain problems, uh, we originally hoped to start getting them in March, and they're about three months behind there. Um, at one time, we thought it might get you know, six or seven on the first sweep, but they weren't able to get enough, or at least not to allocate to our mm-hmm. purchase order, that uh, they could get them all out to us at once there. Um, we, we originally planned to have seven delivered in the first sweep and then five in the second, but uh, they'll, they'll probably just trickle out over the next six months. So whatever you can get, you could start using, right? Oh, yeah. We've already got people booked on them, and we're not even sure the exact date we're getting them. But Man. So let's compare and contrast now that we're talking about all your, your glass cockpits and, and everything like that. Compare and contrast um, a student who would be in your school today versus the instruction that you received. Whether it's equipment, um, um, you know, avionics, uh, philosophy, approach, uh, anything. Just kind of what are some of the differences that you notice? So when I was in my training, it was at a flying club. So it was all, by definition, recreational. Mm-hmm. And so economy was the most important thing. Economy and safety, and that's pretty much all that anyone cared about. Um, at the flight school, these are people, at least half are people that are going to airlines. Uh, and they want to fly something that's going to be as close as possible to what they're eventually going to be flying. And so it's got to be glass cockpit. Um, the, and the airlines want that kind of experience as well. The recreational flyers that we have still want the, the, the nice toys and the, the, the fancy stuff. Um, so and the air conditioning. They benefit from it as well. And the air conditioning. Uh, <laughs> I bet you didn't have air conditioning, right? can afford that. When you flew? When you trained? No, I did not have yeah. air conditioning, no. Uh, I've never no. had air conditioning. It was so. you know, open both windows and take a dive if you want to get cool. <laughs> yeah. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, so the people can tend to be able to afford, or our students can afford, you know, it costs more to operate glass planes and brand new planes and air conditioning and all that. But so far, the, the price hasn't really been a, a strong factor. Uh, we try to keep the pricing down. The fuel is not making that easy these no. days. But um, it, it it still doesn't seem to slow down. We still can't get enough planes to to get everybody in the air that wants to get up right now. So, And I think all schools are kind of facing that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a good problem to have, but it sure would be nice if it were more affordable. Um, Speaking of that, what percentage would you say, I'm sure you offer financing and so on for your, especially your ab initio students. How many, what percentage do you take advantage of something like that? Would you say? 
for the career program, I'd say 90% are taking some sort of financial aid. Okay. Um, that may be a 429 plan that they've you know, already had set aside, um, or it could be a private loan. Uh, we're one of about oh, less than half a dozen non-university schools that have Sally Mae financing available. Huh. And so I'd say the, the vast majority take advantage of that. Okay. All right. Tell me how you guys think about safety. What role do you think initial flight training has in in the safety in the industry? How do, how do we improve safety at that initial flight training level, especially for your career oriented pilots? Um, you mentioned earlier that you, you focus on crew resource management. What in general do you think the role is and what are you guys doing uh, to kind of improve overall safety? It's a huge concern and a huge liability. Um, with insurance like it is today, you can't afford to have any accidents on your record. So you, you've got to do everything you can to prevent it, not only from a safety standpoint, but for an economical viability standpoint. Um, so we, we pay a lot of attention to that. We are probably slow to solo somebody. We, we'll let them accumulate more experience, more hours, that they really are ready to solo before we actually set them loose. But the way we've designed our curriculum, uh, they they get a little further into it and build up some experience. We we put them through a few trial scenarios and lessons that are oriented towards stressing to see how do they handle a stress situation uh, a little earlier in the syllabus than where, at least when I got it in training. Okay, uh, that's part of we we use a safety management system. We encourage you know, um, you know no fault reporting at all levels and. Uh, we have a pretty good stream of reports. You know, maybe just that you know, there's a ladder that could lean over and I mean, follow that could fall onto a plane, or there's a a bump in the tarmac where I'm afraid I'm going to have a prop strike going over, things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, to where you know, we've had one recently that reported that there was a, a, a they called it near miss. It was probably you know a thousand feet, but that's still pretty close. Yeah. Um, in, in the practice area, and, and you know, addressing that, uh, and we have a safety committee that that meets. Uh, officially once a month, usually a little more frequently informally, that goes over those. Uh, we do instructor presentations every two weeks uh, on safety uh, topics as part of our normal instructor briefing. Uh, we have a safety stand down at least once a year. Okay. A few questions that came out of that. Uh, what's the makeup of your safety committee? Uh, it's led by one of our line instructors, Okay. Uh, management sits in, but is uh, not taking the primary role because again, it's, it's non-punitive. It's designed to be anonymous, where only the uh, the chairman, the line instructor, knows the names of the people submitting, or they can submit anonymously, and even even she doesn't know. Um, so that it's designed that we can get the information and act on it without someone having fear that they're going to get in trouble. Uh, and that's a, that's a cornerstone of it. Cool. Um, that sounds pretty awesome, actually. Um, most of your reporters, the people reporting in that system, are they students or instructors? Or is um, it a mix? Probably more instructors. It's definitely a mix, but more instructors of, of any single category. But we have you know, maintenance technicians reporting. We have ramp workers reporting. Um, students, it's pretty much anybody in the company is encouraged. We keep QR codes all over the place that, uh, so cool. they can easily get to the forum to, to report things. Cool. And then one other thing you said piqued my interest a little bit. Uh, you said that in the curriculum, you've designed stressors in there to kind of help evaluate as well as condition students for, for stressors. Can you give a couple of examples of those? Uh, the instructors have some flexibility on that. Uh, but part of it is where the instructor will might actually lean a toe on a rudder during stall practice, things like that. Uh, and again, how does a student recover from that? You know, they should know at that point how to recover from a stall. They, they've learned about spins and how to recognize an incipient spin and react to it. And so the instructor's putting a little thing like that into it. I see. Um, a lot of things like distracting mm-hmm. so that they're getting um, close to airspace. Um, they, they'll fail instruments little surreptitiously, like, you know, dimming the, the, the console when the student's distracted looking out the window or something like that. Um, so that they have little, little tricks and ploys they do that, <laughs> that are just designed to, to really harass the student. But ultimately, it's these, the intention is to 
Well, the intention is to put some stress in there and then get the student to recover on their own. Right. Right. I imagine they uh, talk about this with each other, the the instructors, and giggle a little bit as they come up with new ideas, right? They do. And uh, <laughs> we have some of the students that go pro everything. And so uh, the instructors will generally try to get a copy of the, the recordings of those for the instructor meetings. Or, <laughs> and occasionally, some of the footage makes it on a YouTube channel. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Uh, speaking of which, uh, why don't you mention the YouTube channel? Is it Thrust Flight? Uh, just YouTube.com, just slash Thrust Flight. Uh, seems to be pretty popular. We, we try to get something up every week. Um, they're also active in TikTok, but those are a little more humorous, very short uh, versus instructional or uh, a day in the life kind of thing. I, I'm just impressed somebody your age, Stu, knows what TikTok is. Because I just learned uh, it from I'm you. I'm not an avid TikTok user, but uh, <laughs> I actually have an account. I never posted anything, but I do have an account. So. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Yeah, because I know nothing about it either. All right. <laughs> Tell me your thoughts. Um, this can be from a professional standpoint or your own personal thoughts or whatever, but your thoughts on the current pilot shortage. I, I know you're doing your part uh, by training as many as you can, uh, but do you, you know, you're in the industry. Do you think that this is a semi-long-term problem? Do you have any ideas on how the industry could approach fixing the pilot shortage. Um, Just what are your thoughts in general? Uh, I think it is long-term, probably at least another 10, probably more years. Um, That's based primarily on Boeing studies where they think they need, I don't know what it was, 600,000 pilots in the next 25 years. Uh, And more than that on mechanics, like 650,000 mechanics. Wow. Um, And if every school in the country was producing full capacity, or the world for that matter, we, we won't make it. Uh, they just can't produce that many pilots with the, the resources that are currently devoted. So there'll have to be more schools and more methods to do it. I think financing is probably the biggest hurdle to people entering the industry. Uh, the initial uh, financing, you know, right? Cost, the right. initial training, you know, yeah. For okay. all of your ratings, you're probably looking at $100,000 right. uh, on the high end, You know, seventy-five dollars to $100,000, and you still got to live during that time. Yep. So that it gets very expensive. It's you know not like a four year degree, but it's not that far from it either. Yeah. Um, so that's the biggest. It's problem. more immediately uh, applicable seen, in some ways, though, than a four year degree. <laughs> it is. Um, we we actually encourage our students to come directly out of high school. Okay. Uh, get that clock ticking. Yep. Get those ratings. Build those hours. Get get your seniority number as quickly as possible. Uh, we did a study, uh, I think year before last. Um, that, and this was based on 2019, so it was pre-COVID, and it's even more so now. But someone entering the airline six months earlier and having a six-month higher seniority number could be up to a $2 million difference by the time they retire. Wow. Uh, just in, in the 401k size and the the fact they'll have a better life. Uh, you know, again, working as an airline pilot's not that glorious and fun for the first few years. Yep. You're on reserve. You're flying the worst times. Every holiday you miss, the worst places you seem to miss. (laughs) Yep, Um, and you know you're you're based in some place that's horrible that you have to commute to. So that's you know day on either side of your uh, your work that you have to lose. So it's not that glamorous. But the good news is um, when you make first officer at a major, um, it starts to get a little better just because you're going to better places. Yep. Uh, When you make captain a major, um, you start. Yeah, that, that's your last low point on the totem pole. Yep, yep. So you start climbing and you'll never go down again. Yeah. Um, and by the time a captain retires, they're making you know well over half a million dollars a year working 11 days a month, flying what they want to do and where they want to go. Yeah. Uh, so it can be a really nice career. You just have to be willing to accept those rough times for a year or so as you start a new hurdle, new rung on the ladder. That's right. Yeah. Do you have? Uh, uh, I think that's going to continue. Do you have a link to that study on your website? Um, we pulled it down because it's dated. We're, we're doing an update, so I don't oh, know okay. if they finished that yet. Um, it, but it, it was basically someone starting at, at twenty-one, and you know if they're contributing their four hundred one k at the max rate, which is what we highly recommend. Yep. Um, that because of that earlier seniority they're going to progress quicker and get those upgrades quicker. And that can really add up over a, you know, 40 year, 42 year career. Sure. 
Yeah. It'll be interesting. Um, I would love to get that out to my listeners when you get that updated. So let's stay in touch and um, I'll get that sent out to everybody. Maybe mention it on one of the future episodes because that's really good information. All right. So what is your, and again, you've touched on some of this already, but what would be your advice for a potential student pilot to help work through their success? Um, Stick with it is the main thing. There will be plateaus on every rating. There's going to be hurdles. You're not going to think you can make it. Um, but if you have a positive attitude and you just you know, plow through it and, and keep bouncing those landings, you'll eventually <laughs> get them when they're smooth. It, it really is a numbers game. So uh, we see way too many people give up mm-hmm. that just convinced they'll never master a landing. And you know, in some cases, their instructor will think, well, you know, another month they would have been nailing every one of them, Hmm. but they got to fly that month. Stick with it. That's the advice. Yeah. It's not easy. If it were easy, there wouldn't be a pilot shortage. (laughs) That's right. But it's worth it. (laughs) Cool. All right. Anything that I didn't ask that I should have, Stu? Um, I can't think of anything. Um, Well, I I will say one thing. We mentioned earlier that, you know, the the four-year degree is no longer required for the airlines. Right. I still think People ought to get a degree. Uh, Backup plans, right? Too, yeah, airline or corporate. Corporate still requires it more than airlines do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we recommend that you get those ratings as quickly as possible. Build your hours as quickly as possible. And while you're flying, particularly as a first officer on reserve, work online to get, the, get a degree. Yeah. Even if it's just a two-year de- two degree. Right. Get that something. means a lot, particularly in the corporate world. Excellent. Good advice. All right. I just got one more question for you. Any chance, any chance um, in the near future of getting a pilot's journey uh, episode update? (laughs) We poked at it a few times over the last year or so. Um, And right now, you know, both, uh, both Stu and Mike are flying um, 121. And so, and crazy because again, no, I think I shortage, thought, so they're, I they're thought Mike busy. was one twenty, uh, was one thirty five. Actually, he may be one thirty five. You're right. Um, yeah. that's definitely what, a, a. That's what I told you this before, but that's what makes that podcast so interesting to me. Is <laughs> you're running a flight school and you're a CFI. One of them, one of them is flying one twenty one. Another one's flying one thirty five. Those stories are gold, man. I, I, I know that well, I'm not alone started, when I Stu say we would love to hear more that had anything commercially oriented. At I all. know. I uh, know. And that was just cause he was constructing for the fun of it. I know. Um, so it, it really is interesting that we've all ended up in as a career in it. So I know I love it. So hopefully I'm crossing my fingers. Well, Stu, I'll see if I can nail them down. We were going to try to do Oshkosh this year, but ended up none of us are going to be able to make it this oh, year. But, yeah, that's a disappointment. Uh, we've all got it on the calendar for next year. We're, all right. we're going to determine to make it in 23. All right. Awesome. Well, Stu, I really appreciate the time. This was super interesting. Really great to kind of get the insights from you on the inside of an ab initio flight school. I'm sure it's going to be really interesting to a lot of the listeners. So thank you very much. Well, I've enjoyed it. It's nice catching up with you, and uh, hopefully we get to get to talk to some more over the next few months, years, rest of our careers. Of course. Uh, of course. I would love it. All right. Well, thanks. Have a great one. You too. Take care. Okay. So I hope you enjoyed our chat. Please let me know if you have any questions for Stu, and I'll pass them along. Also, I'll likely have similar discussions with others in the industry, especially around training. So let me know what you'd like me to ask in future episodes. You can do that via email or the contact form on the website. My email address is bill at studentpilotcast.com. Or you can reach me on the website contact form at studentpilotcast.com. On Twitter, I'm at Bill Will. That's Bravo India Lima Lima Whiskey India Lima. I love talking to people who have similar passion for aviation and especially when they dive into it as Stu has done. As he mentioned, when he started the Pilot's Journey podcast, he was a private pilot and flying for fun along with one of his other co-hosts. Now all three of them are doing something different professionally in aviation. Quite a pilot's journey after all. If any of you are thinking about a career in the cockpit, it seems like a great time to become a pilot. Feel free to reach out to Thrust Flight or any other flight school and get started. Thanks for listening. 
music for today's episode is To Be an Angel by the Canadian band Uncle Seth. You can get more information and subscribe to the podcast feeds on the web at studentpilotcast.com. Remember, any instruction that you hear in this podcast was meant for me and for me alone in the situation I was in at the time. Please do not try to blindly apply anything you see or hear in this podcast to your own flying without thinking it through on your own completely. If you have questions about any aspect of your flying, please consult a qualified CFI.